welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some friends from Philadelphia come together to talk about all things movies. Um, first off, we are very happy to be a part of the Movie John, that's J-A-W-N, Podcast Network. Um, be sure to check out all the many wonderful podcasts that are in our network family. As I should mention, I'm joined today by Christine, Sam, and Dave. It's actually been a while since I've hosted an episode. Um, going back and looking at our schedule, usually I kind of kick off themes, but Sam so wonderfully kicked off our romance theme with Legends of the Fall, a movie that is still haunting me. So thank you, Sam. <laughs> Anytime. Has anybody seen anything good recently? I know that now it feels like Hollywood is actually releasing some movies finally, or HBO or you know all these other services. So has anybody seen anything new or anything exciting in the past couple days or weeks? Um, I watched the new Conjuring movie. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, I wouldn't, I would probably if, okay. So if I was going to give it a pass or fail, I would give it a fail, but oh, okay. it, it like only because I think they try to do a little too much. And what worked about the first one so well is that everything's like very isolated to like one house and one family. So I think that they, they knew they, 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 we're like, oh, we didn't do the second one that well. So like, let's really go for it. And then they went for it and it didn't work. But um, I love Patrick Wilson. Dave, I know you don't like him, but um, I love Patrick Wilson. So it was great to see him again. I also saw The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And yeah, I would say it sits third in how I feel about The Conjuring movies. Um, I'm a big fan of the first one. More so, I think, when it came out in theaters, still enjoy rewatching it. Um, Alyssa and I, along with two of our friends, actually, we watched the third one and then watched uh, one and two after that. So we watched all three in the past day, day or two. And so I think the first one's still my favorite. And I appreciate with the third one of how they're like, we're not doing a haunted house thing. We're trying something different, focusing more on these relationships. Um, because I think Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga have really great on-screen chemistry i think seeing their relationship evolve over three movies like ed and lorraine i think it was some of the best parts of the conjuring movies and so i don't know if i'd give it a fail but i would give it a i enjoyed it but i don't think it was great can i ask what the beef is with patrick uh wilson oh <laughs> uh, i don't have a problem with him as a guy or anything i just think like i don't know as an actor he seems to kind of have like one pensive face that he uses all of the time doesn't really have a whole lot of range in that department, but I, I don't know. I don't have any ill will against him. I'm just not the biggest fan, I guess. You're yeah. You're that was a great point. You brought it up, and I could immediately imagine like a Patrick Wilson like stern face. The Patrick Wilson face. <laughs> the fa- yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. He might be one of those people who only has so many face like <laughs> the ways that he can move his face. <laughs> who knew you were talking about his disability? Jesus Christ! No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Well, so I am very sorry. I don't think oh, that's see, that scene in the second one when he sings Elvis to the family. That's a really beautiful scene. Ugh, so I'm not. a big Patrick Wilson defender. Um, <laughs> he's the best part, hands down, the best part of Aquaman because he's acting in a totally different movie. He's in Aquaman. Yeah, he's the villain. Mm-hmm. He's the lead bad guy, and he is hamming it up for all it's worth. I only got so much watching it on a plane, two seats in front of me. <laughs> I guess I missed the villain part. <laughs> My favorite way to enjoy a movie is silent and two rows down from me on a plane. That should be uh, a new theme. Yes, movies you've only seen <laughs> watching it over somebody's shoulder. I think that's a great theme. <laughs> uh, has anybody else seen 
you know, conjuring anything else new or uh, exciting or, you know, you want to talk about? Well, I guess this ties into disappointing horror. And um, I know we got some Adam Wingard fans in the room, uh, but I did go back and rewatch Blair Witch, his uh, sequel to his 2016 sequel to the original Blair Witch Project. That after Book of Shadows, uh, Blair Witch 2, which, of course, is known as a, a huge flop. Uh, this one, a lot of people liked, and I really did not care for, uh, I found it very frustrating in the way that, uh, kind of like Sam, you're describing as far as the conjuring or, uh, Connor, it's, it's sort of like takes for granted all of the, the groundwork that the original one laid and, uh, just sort of goes in another direction entirely while also trying to pay homage to it, but also rewriting a lot of it. So yeah, I don't know. I, I found it to be a uh, pretty cloying and annoying. Then I also watched uh, today's movie and uh, the one that we'll be talking about, uh, I believe, next week. So it's uh, a little bit of an emotional, heavy day. Uh, after watching those two, I figured, well, you know what? Well, what else haven't I seen? So I popped on, uh, because I haven't gotten to it yet, uh, Manchester by the Sea, which is, <laughs> I don't know what I was doing today. So it's it's really uh, taken kind of a cinematic beating emotionally for the last, uh, I don't know, like seven hours or so. So all today. Oh. I was expecting you to be like, yeah, I just watched, you know, some pretty emotional movies. So then I <laughs> popped in something fun, something, you know, light. And then you were like, and watched Manchester by the <laughs> And took it hard in the other direction. <laughs> or the same direction, but with same direction. even more extreme. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I liked it a lot, but man, yeah, that's a tough movie. What's your opinion on Casey Affleck, Dave? Uh, you know, it sounds like he's uh, not not the best dude. Um, from a lot of reports that I have heard. Um, I think he's a pretty talented actor. I've seen him in a lot of stuff that he performs well in. But yeah, that stuff's a bummer. <laughs> he's no he's no uh, Patrick Wilson, I guess let's say. <laughs> it's a benchmark for, <laughs> for any... Uh, any uh, well, as far as I know, anyway. <laughs> um, I didn't watch anything new. Uh, I rewatched Interstellar and like, fuck... I just cry every time I watch that movie. And I've, I recognize that it is a flawed movie. Like the fucking shelf of love climax is so stupid. But boy, does this movie, it's like the movie does so many other things so well that I'm willing to overlook shelf of love. And I'm willing to just coast right through that scene and all the other dumbass parts of that movie and just enjoy how like transporting it is. Like I really, yeah. Um, I don't have a big t- or like I don't have a TV in my apartment. I have a projector, but like I watched this uh, in somebody else's house, and they have a big TV and like a sound system. It was just like just like crying. Anyhow, so that was a great rewatch. And then I watched Fast and Furious Six. Haven't I haven't seen any of the Fast and Furious movies. So hmm. that was my introduction to the franchise. Hilarious. Uh, I am. I will one day. I think as Tori did watch the whole. I want to now watch the whole franchise, um, just to to see how many random people pop in them. Gal Gadot was in Fast and Furious Six. I had no idea. Um, and it's funny. I mean, it's amazing. Like Michelle Rodriguez, her star is like ascending. And then everybody else who's in those movies, stars are just like <laughs> descending. <laughs> but anyhow, that's my my quick take on the Fast and Furious. I have also never seen a single Fast and Furious movie. Um, but I'm curious to see how the ninth one, which is coming out this year, performs. Because it did, did perfectly okay in China. 
I think it made just over 200 million US dollars when the last one made almost half a billion dollars in China alone. Oh, wow. Um, so a huge drop off there for the ninth one. So curious to see how that franchise does and when they'll go to space eventually, which maybe they do in the ninth one. Maybe the space one will be the first one I watch. All right, well, let's dive into today's movie, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We are wrapping up our romance theme. And this is a movie that Tori actually talked about a while ago when it came out in 2019. And so, you know, recommended that I watch it, watched it, I guess, maybe a few weeks after it came out and then absolutely fell in love with it. And when we talked about romance, this was one of the first movies that popped to my mind. And so I'm so happy to be able to bring it to the Butter Crew. Uh, Has anybody seen portrait of a lady on fire before uh i had not and christine you have not either and sam you have cool sam do you want to share just some quick thoughts about revisiting it and yeah um i i'm almost afraid to say this i don't particularly care for it um i'm here to listen and to understand like there are certain things that i i do love like the cinematography i mean like it's beautiful but I just found myself going like, okay, okay. So like, I'm I'm here to listen. Uh, it is definitely in some ways like critically like beloved, but also very divisive, especially when I was reading interviews um, with the director, so I'm sure I get her name right, uh, Celine Schiema, uh, that in France, this movie was pretty divisive and not a whole lot of people seemed to like it in France when in uh, American or other um, countries, it was really incredibly popular. So I think a lot of people feel kind of similarly to the way you do, Sam. Yeah. And and honestly, there's something to it of when a film is by, um, you know, a, a director of color or the film tackles a like a something you don't often see in movies or or just any any anyone any person any group that has been oppressed in any way like sometimes i feel like if you don't like it um you need to be quiet because and and like it almost seems like unanimously people love it you don't want to say that you have an opposite opinion. I felt that way with Parasite. I was very scared to tell people I didn't like it. And it that's one of those things. That's just how I feel. I could be totally wrong, but you know, it. you like what you like, you don't what you don't. I hope that the butter with that sphere uh, is a safe space for all to share what movies they like or don't like. Uh, Christine or Dave, do you want to, you know, first time watching Dave, it seems you went on a bit of an emotional roller coaster today. So curious to hear your thoughts. Um, yeah, it was my first time seeing it. Um, and, uh, knew kind of like a little bit of like the, the narrative context going into it and, uh, kind of like, I guess knew what to expect in a sense, as far as the storytelling and so on, um, to a degree, but I found myself pretty swept away by it. There was a lot that I was really taken by and I found it to be a, a really, really impactful and really uh, kind of like uniquely uh, intimately interpersonal romance film. Uh, you know, one that is, uh, you know, obviously it's ha- has its narrative context and, you know, uh, the world in which these characters occupy and sort of a statement on that, but it, it is really so um, such an insular and intimate portrait of, um, of two people's uh, kind of experience in a way that I find really refreshing and, 
And uh, Sam, as you mentioned, is a stunning movie visually. It's really like breathtaking the whole time and has some sequences that seeing them for the first time, I think are going to remain ingrained in my memory for a very long time. So uh, really looking forward to, t- to talking about it and unpacking all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think if I was to make a, a list of like what I would love to see a movie do, this movie pretty much checked off everything on that list. Um, and I like... It explores that, like, artist-subject dynamic so well. Um, And I just loved a scene in which two people examine how the other is, like, this this beautiful reciprocal act of examining. And you Mm -hmm. see that portrayed in the artist-subject relationship and using that as an avenue to explore power dynamic, like, gender, class, uh, power dynamics as well in like the 1700s France, which I don't know a whole lot about, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I really, I I was also pretty swept away by it and I loved the selective use of music too. There were only two musical themes in the movie. Uh, Other, otherwise it was, it was pretty silent. And so when those two musical or like three musical moments happen, it's just, it just blooms in like within the movie. And so I would, yeah, I, I would love to hear what the group, there were some moments where I thought the movie exists somewhat in still in a fairy tale universe. And it doesn't maybe tap beneath surfaces of the, some things, some el- like narrative elements I was wondering about. Um, and so I would be curious to, uh, if it comes up to kind of, like see what the group thinks but otherwise yeah i mean i i was pretty uh taken by yeah by the movie uh i've loved <clears throat> sorry loved all the points that everybody um is bringing up and i can't wait uh to dive deep and to talk about some of my favorite scenes uh but before we go in i just want to talk a little bit about what is portrait of a lady on fire uh premiered on may 19th 2019 which feels like a million years ago um at the con film festival uh it won best screenplay Best Queer Film, and was nominated for the Palme d'Or. This is a French film, so I never studied French, so I will do my best with the pronunciations. Uh, It was written and directed by Celine uh, Sciamma. Uh, Cinematographer was Claire Mathon, and is starring um, Nomi Merlant as kind of our lead, Marianne. She's a painter. Um, Adele Hainel as Heloise, and Luna Bajrami as Sophie. And finally, um, Valeria Golino as the Countess, uh, Heloise's mother. And those are pretty much the only speaking roles in the entire movie. Um, it is a very small, intimate cast. Um, and here's just sort of a brief plot summary for those who haven't seen it. In 1770, a, talent, a talented pa- painter named Marianne arrives on a remote island to secretly paint the young daughter of a French countess. Uh, Heloise and Marianne's relationship blossoms into a romantic affair, but the forces of class, patriarchy, and marriage test the bonds of these women. Ultimately, Portrait of the Lady on Fire, to quote Carlos Aguilar from Rod. Ra- Ra- RogerEbert.com, is a duel of gazes, a battle of subtle exchanges where no one easily surrenders until the embers of passion are just too feverish to resist, all thankfully without a single man in sight to crowd their frame or hinder their revelry. Uh, This movie, as we've talked about a little bit, has received 
pretty much universal critical acclaim uh, by major media outlets uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. The film has an approval rating of 98% critically, and I believe audience reviews is at 92 or 93. Um, and the website's critical consensus reads, a singularly rich period piece, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, finds stirring, thought-provoking drama within a powerfully acted romance. And I just found a few little quotes from some critics that I wanted to share. Um, A.O. Scott of the New York Times wrote that Portrait of a Lady on Fire is subtle and is a subtle and thrilling love story, at once unsentimental in its realistic assessment of women's circumstances, describing Marianne and Eloise's relationship as less of a chronicle of forbidden desire than an examination of how desire works and the dangerous, irresistible power of looking. And we've already talked about kind of observer, observee. That's a really huge theme in the film. Um, Laura Greenblatt from EW said, there's almost no single moment in Portrait of a Lady on Fire that couldn't be captured, mounted, and hung on a wall as high art. That's how visually ravishing it is to experience writer-director Celine Schiema's art house swoon of a movie. So... Lots of praise. And why did I pick this movie for Romance Month? Uh, it's simple in plot, but rich in character and themes. There are you know, many kind of long takes. I'm sure if somebody were to calculate you know, the number of shots you know, versus cuts, I'm sure this one has much longer takes than a lot of other movies. Uh, and Drop Dead Gorgeous uh, cinematography. It's literally light on music, but Portrait on a Lady on Fire, you know, in my opinion, uh, sort of has a swelling orchestral mythic feel it's a grounded lesbian love story that doesn't necessarily revolve around hiding you know this romance but rather as i mentioned in the quote before what the power of desire is um a stunning movie in my opinion and a really rich movie and so i guess just sort of wanted to start with i figured going through the characters since there's only a few of them would be a good way to start so I guess let's just start with Marianne, who's sort of the protagonist, the lead of the movie. Um, she is a painter from the artisan class who was contracted by the Countess to come to this remote island uh, where Heloise is because she is destined, you know, she is arranged to marry this, um, I guess, prince in Milan or this extremely wealthy man in Milan. And before photography, people would have their portraits painted and shown before people be like, do you want to marry this person in this portrait? She's pretty sure. So there's a lot of pressure put on Marianne, pressure put on Eloise to capture this painting. And I think Marianne is a really wonderful character. And it starts off the movie with her on this boat, rowing forward. Um, all these men are rowing. She's on the boat with this box of canvases and the camera is moving up and down. It's kind of a little nauseating. None of the men are looking at the camera. Her canvas box kind of gets accidentally thrown into the water by the waves. And she just jumps right in, does not let, you know, the men, it's unclear if there's an assumption that they won't help her or she just has to take care of it herself. And then she swims out, grabs it, comes back, and then has to carry all the stuff up to the top of these cliffs with the dude saying, yeah, it's up there. See you later. Rose away. So that's sort of how we're introduced to this character of Marianne, uh, the painter. And so what do you guys sort of think of our lead character? I mean, in that context, uh, first of all, the <clears throat> all the uh, cinematography and like the lush color and saturation of that sequence, as far as like that deep ocean, deep but bright ocean blue. And and Connor, as you're mentioning, this very diagenic bobbing of the camera to give us a perspective and really root us there is a really awesome introduction to this movie and to this character because as you said she jumps overboard when it seems no one else is motivated to save these campuses so like 
you know, there's, they're an open ocean. It's very cold water. You know, she's willing to risk life and limb for art, literally, um, right at the beginning of the movie when we're introduced to her character. And she's also willing to, you know, trudge up to these mountain cliffs alone to, uh, to get to the location for this portraiture, uh, assignment. So, uh, very motivated, obviously. And we also uh, do do get an establishing thing before that, uh, the very beginning of the movie where uh, she is teaching an art class to uh, to other women uh, seemingly later. And one student remarks upon one of her paintings, uh, which is, of course, titled uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So we get, we get kind of the dual introduction to the character, but both things, I think, say the same thing, that she's a very passionate and invested artist. Thanks for bringing up that opening scene, Dave. I totally forgot to mention that, that this is also a um, like flashback movie. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much all the movie takes place in this flashback. Maybe it's 10 or 15 years in the past. Um, that's unclear, but definitely establishing her as this painter and then going back in time. And the, the kind of motif of looking is established from the very first shots where you see uh, mm. six of Marianne's students who are doing studies of her are looking up, looking down, looking up, looking down, and the way the camera captures their glances uh, is is beautiful and and sort of positions this motif or like sort of presents this motif of looking, and then I think also situates or like reminds the viewer, like me, that I'm also engaging in this act of looking at all at the characters, and it sort of it already establishes that that viewership relationship that viewing relationship and just another thing i really like about that scene too is that it, it it sets it up because we're first yeah we're first seeing these students drawing and uh and they're looking up and down and rendering and, and as a former you know as a former art student i'm just like drooling just like ugh, yes the charcoal the gesture drawings but but we hear an instructor you know telling them what to pay attention to uh, proportions and so on. Uh, but then it reveals that she herself is both the model and the instructor, which is an interesting kind of power dynamic too, because she's instructing them on what to pay attention to notice how my hands are folded and so on. So really interesting, uh, almost kind of foreshadowing. I'm also really glad you brought up the bobbing shot of the boat sequence, because it just reminded me, and I'm jumping all the way to the final shot, which I'm sure we'll talk all about. But mm-hmm. uh, it just crossed my mind, just as you mentioned bobbing, that the camera similarly, like it, to a lesser extent, but similarly bobs as it's focused on Eloise in that final extended shot. And I was like, oh, that's such a sort of a beautiful return to camera movement. And really a lot of the shots throughout the middle of the movie are pretty still and quite paint like still portraits of characters in like engaging in scenes and things like that so there isn't a whole lot of like bobbing camera movement unless I'm misremembering some of the outdoor scenes but anyhow I just wanted to bring that up because I just when you mentioned that Dave I was like oh that's a nice sort of return to camera movement at the end of the movie I think what a great for me thinking about the first just couple minutes what a great use of you know screenplay time of just in the first 10 minutes i feel like we learn a lot about um our main character marianne we were getting some thematic points for scenes you brought up with observing and looking um kind of sort of being brought into this world so uh not surprised that it won best screenplay at con because i feel like the screenplay is absolutely fantastic for also kind of how sparse it is this is not a aaron sorkin people talking a mile a minute uh film this is a very i guess I don't necessarily want to say understated, but it's not trying to, 
you know, write a million pages, have a million characters with a million lines. It's really an efficient screenplay, making the most out of every sentence, every gesture, every gaze. Yes, a great points to bring up. So Marianne gets to the house. Everything is soaked. And so we see her take these portraits out and we sort of just get a little like introduction to what the house looks like. We're learning more about Marianne. Um, a beautiful shot of when she takes these wet canvases out of the box and lays them beside the fireplace as she's sitting there. Um, she's nude, also drying her clothes and just, man, just the framing, the cinematography, the lighting. Apparently all, you know, this movie was shot on digital, which I was kind of surprised to learn. Really? I thought this would have been, yep, all on digital. Wow. Um, which Yeah, you could have fooled me too. That's really mm-hmm. impressive. And all the lighting was, as far as I'm aware, pretty practical. If there's a fire in the scene, you know, it's dark outside. That fire is the main light source that they're using, candles. So um, a very sort of grounded approach to this filmmaking. And then once she's kind of dried off, you know, this the next day, and then we're introduced um, to sort of what's the main sort of crux of the plot where Marianne meets with the Countess, who's Eloise's mother. And we sort of also at this time see this, I don't know, this movie in some ways, I feel like dips into some horror genre things a little bit, like some with visuals or like unsettlingness. It's got Um, an almost like implication of an almost, yeah, an almost mythological kind of nature or something. Yeah. Right. Which I think ties into some of the themes later in the movie. Right. Um, So Marianne is brought in and, I know some people like I saw some people criticizing this as sort of like a driving force or something that's a little um, maybe not explored as much. But she's there because the previous painter who was trying to paint Eloise um, couldn't finish the job because he never was really able to see Eloise's face. And so we have this really creepy painting. That's her in this green dress, hands folded, you know, proper model. But the face, there's just like no paint there. Wait, why did people? Oh, people were like criticizing it because it didn't go deeper into what had happened before? I think I, I just saw Marianne a few blips of criticism here or there. I think of like, this is sort of like a weak plot point to hang a movie on or just some brief criticisms about maybe like this sort of gets dropped off through the movie and it mm-hmm. kind of turns into something else people were criticizing. Not well, I don't think it, I, I, in fact, I think it very clearly establishes a key aspect mm-hmm. of, uh, Eloise's character and she's a person that refused to like be defined by a por- like I sort of saw that detail as okay we already know a lot about this character before we even meet her um, her mother says she refused to sit for the portrait she mm-hmm. like the painter literally couldn't capture her face and so I thought that's like an essential part of who Eloise is already establish her, establishing her as a pretty strong-willed character who who was bucking against everything from sitting for a portrait, but in a larger sense, kind of what she's destined to do, which is get married off to, you know, the Milanese gentleman or whatever. So I, I guess I could see the concern of it dropping off as like a mystery plot point and not deve- further developing it, but as a, as a character development point i thought that's like a vital detail that carries that like begins her sort of understanding of herself and like establish like is key to understanding the relationship she ends up having with uh with marianne i 100 yeah i 100 percent agree with all those points that you're bringing up i for me that really helped draw me in and in a movie that is is slower paced the director she jokes that in french there's no word for slow burn so she's like, maybe culturally, there's like 
she's just hypothesizing that maybe that's kind of some point why some French audiences didn't quite connect to it, like, you know, American audiences or other audiences. Um, but I think for me, that was, I thought, a really good hook to sort of, you know, kind of initiate with this mystery that will then kind of unravel and then the movie sort of turns into kind of something else a little. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh... I guess I, I I understand that criticism for the more curious, but I think that it's it's smart of the movie to avoid it in the sense that, mm-hmm. you know, how much of a story do we need about her un- unwillingness to pose for a man painting her? I mean, it's you know we we come to understand all of that and why. By contrast, when you know, spoiler alert, she's becomes more willing to participate in the case of working with uh, Marianne. So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think you I don't think you lose anything from from not exploring that further. I think it's all it's all pretty well stated. And I also think this movie feels just the tiniest bit long, although I don't know what I'd cut. So, like, I don't think adding more would have or, or managing the time differently would have been effective either. So, yeah, I, I don't miss it, really. And I think this scene and it's yeah, Dave, you're right. It's hard to kind of like what would you cut out? Because it does kind of feel its length a little bit. Um, I wonder if that's maybe more pacing than actual runtime of kind of how the whole movie is sort of set up or how scenes are set up, maybe. Maybe. Um, but this kind of one of these, op- you know, one of the first opening scenes with the mother of Heloise, I think is also really telling a sort of, you know, she wants her daughter to marry this Milanese nobleman. Uh, the mom is from Milan. And so she was then married off to basically, I guess, live alone on this island. Like this is her villa on this island. And so there's a portrait of her, the countess, when she was, you know, probably in her you know, mid twenties, early twenties. And this is sort of like everything she aspires Eloise to be, because this is the world that the mother is living in. And so this is the status quo. And then as the movie goes on, the status quo, you know, gets examined of, is this how it should be? The fate that the countess wants for Eloise and, you know, the rest of the movie sort of wrestling with that, thinking about that. Another character that we meet early on is uh, Sophie, who is one of my favorite characters in the movie. Um, She is not of the... She's not an artisan. She's not a noblewoman. Uh, she is sort of of the uh, servant class. But in no way does this movie treat her like an extra, like a set dressing. Um, she is sort of this fully formed character. And it's uh, through her that we learn a lot about this island. She's been here probably for most of her life. She's incredibly observant. Um, there's a lot of mystery, as we mentioned, around Eloise and you know, she's kind of locked away in this villa. She's only permitted to go on walks with Marianne to kind of so Marianne can look at her and observe her so she can make her portrait. And so before we meet Eloise, um, we you know, are interacting with, so I believe this happens before we meet Eloise. Uh, Marianne is interacting with Sophie and just kind of learning about the mistress, you know, learning about Eloise. And then we learn that uh, Eloise was actually in a nunnery, a convent. She was supposed to be a nun. Later in the movie, we learned that she really enjoyed this monastic life, that there was music, there was singing, you know, there was sort of peace and solitude. But it seems like her sister, Eloise's older sister, died, was supposed to be married off. And it's Sophie who informs us that she believes it was suicide. And I think this is such a great detail to give to a character in writing because Marianne's like, well, why did you think, you know, did you think that she jumped off the cliff? Because, you know, Sophie and Eloise's sister were going on a walk by the cliffs. Sister fell off the cliffs. And then, you know, Sophie says, well, she didn't, I didn't hear any screaming. So she jumped off the cliff. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's insinuating. What a great little, just to show us how, you know, observational Sophie is. Which is also, uh, for context, why the Countess won't really allow Eloise to explore the the grounds and the island on her own because of fear that, uh, as she put it in her, uh, I don't remember, like basically in her negligence that it, it allowed an opportunity for that to happen to the sister. 
And so an interesting way of sort of showing the stakes that the mom feels like this is literally life or death on a few different levels for Mm -hmm. the countess. Um, If she, if Eloise does not get married off, then she will not have a prosperous life. Um, And then if this painting kind of scheme gets revealed, then she's afraid that her other daughter will jump off the cliff and kill herself. So the stakes are very high just on this kind of little island here. Um, and the first time that we actually meet Eloise, she is totally cloaked in black. She still has her clothes from the convent on. Um, at least that's what I assume they were. They seem a little extravagant to be in a nun maybe, but uh, totally covered in black, uh, this beautiful black cloak. And then she goes out of the house of Marianne and just starts running toward the cliffs. And so we just learned that her sister died this way. And so there's this moment of like, is this... Like, is this the take, you know, the turn the movie's going to go? And then she stops at the edge and says, oh, I've been wanting to run for so long. And I think what a beautiful way to sort of be introduced to this character. It's it's easily my favorite scene in the film. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, like, Connor, as you described, like, you know, Eloise appears like downstairs and wordless and like cloaked and in this darkness. Uh, then she she opens the door and, you know, all of this implying a kind of like mythic gravity to her character. Um, she opens the door and she remains hooded and we never really get a, a glance from around her. So it's it's always centered with her moving forward with the cloak. And then a, as she eventually keeps walking, you know, the hood f- on its own just falls loose. We see a shock of her blonde hair. And then she that's, you know, when she bolts to the shoreline and, and yeah, stops at the end and says, um, uh, says to Marianne, of course, uh, I dreamt of doing that for years. Marianne, of course, thinking about the suicide of her sister responds dying. Uh, and then Marianne just sort of responding running. It's such an amazing introduction for these characters and such one that really uh, it, it's hard to describe how without without seeing the scene, like the level of like cinematic and like cinem- by that, I mean, like cinematography, like cinematic import of this, this moment, this meeting, her her Eloise's unknowability to uh, Marianne in that moment until they meet at the edge and have that exchange. So, yeah, it's. It's one of those scenes that I think is going to stay with me for a very long time because I was that that was kind of the moment when I became hypnotized by this movie and was really, really invested. And then that's when we are introduced to now our two, I guess, you know, romantic leads, um, Marianne and Eloise, this pair together. And man, what a fantastic performance from well, both um, Nomi Merlant and Adele Enel, um, especially. Um, Hanel's eyes like this movie has such a focus on observing and the observed and all those scenes where and this there's kind of this funny double take where Marianne you know basically you know she can sort of you know probably pretty easily paint most of her features just looking pretty quickly but how do you paint somebody's face or eyes or get their likeness if you never looked at them so Eloise thinks that Marianne is just some sort of companion handmade of sort that her mother hired to just you know keep watch over her give her you know some uh, companion to walk the grounds with and so there's this great there's lots of great moments between the two of them and there's this where they're kind of doing a double take where marianne is trying to look at her face eloise looks back and then marianne kind of looks away and, and then it's this great back and forth and then the scene moment ends with eloise just sort of like staring almost at us like at the camera at us sort of the cinematic observers yeah and all those stolen glances between the two of them with different, you know, understandings and motivations, it's really, it's really pretty great. There are some such playful moments in this movie. One of them being what you guys mentioned, the the turned, you're looking at 
the profile of the two characters and they're just alternating looking and looking at each other. And it's just a, it's just a wonderful and very, and very playful moment uh, that gets returned to in the, in the, when they're in the, the three of them, Sophie, Eloise and Mary, Marianne are in the tall grass and they alternate standing up in the tall grass. Mm -hmm. And I just love the way those shots mirror one another. Um, and yeah, infusing it with playful energy when the story is quite dramatic. It's just a nice reminder that there are some, yeah, just sort of light moments. For sure. And Ski Ahmad sort of talked about like she wanted to, when writing this film, she wanted to avoid the sort of like strong female woman biopic drama kind of energy of a movie. Cause she's like, what does even like a strong woman mean? Like her goal was sort of to try to create something that was honest, something that discussed art uh, power dynamics. And so I think this is sort of when we're moving into sort of some of the big themes of this movie. And one that I really wanted to bring up, and I found this great quote from her talking about um, this idea of sorority. So this is from Vox. Uh, I really wanted, and this is an interview that she did with Fox.com. I really wanted to embody sorority on screen and sorority has this political effect that it can abolish social, a social hierarchy. And as the film was trying to you know, build a love dialogue with equality, I also wanted to play with the buttons of social hierarchy with these characters. Uh, even though there is a strong hierarchy, uh, we're not playing with that. She is never, uh, this is referring to Sophie, she's never just you know, a story or an extra carrying a tray. Um, you never see her with the Countess, the mother. Uh, Sophie makes no appearance when she is in the frame because she has her own journey, her own goals, her own desire. And I really wanted to show that. She also kind of goes on talking about how, for her, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a manifesto about the female gaze. Uh, you know, she asked the interviewer, for instance, you know, ask yourself the question, how do you embody sorority? Uh, the answer being, take a, uh, it's a long take, a wide shot of three women in the kitchen with social hierarchy being totally turned around. The aristocratic woman, uh, women cooking, whereas the maid is an artist. Um, I believe she's doing needlepoint. And yeah, the artist, that seems amazing. That's mm -hmm. a great shot. Artist is looking at the maid. They're all silent. Such a powerful image, uh, and it's so easy to make. Uh, she goes on to say, "People are telling me, oh, your film is a utopia,' and I'm like, yeah, but our utopias are not ideas we have in our minds. They're not things that we wish we're living. They're rooted in our own experience. I know about sorority. I know about an all an all women world. It's not a utopia. It's a part of my life, and that's what I rely on to make these images." And I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that was something I was kind of wrestling with throughout the movie is like I mentioned it, it felt like it had sort of a fairy tale sheen to it just because everything did seem so idyllic. And I was like, like with the character of Marianne, I was like, I would hope it, I like like looking historically at that period of time, it would have been really cool to know about a female painter who was inheriting her father's business and was independent like economically independent and freeing her to be able to move you know go to a remote island make some cash making a painting all of these things and I'm like tell me more like did did somebody like her exist because because it like I, I I'm so swept up in this world but at the same time I'm I'm reminded of like the historical time period and the real threats that women would have faced and does the movie uh, break through sort of that 
sort of magic and utopian sense to to acknowledge. And I think with the character of Sophie and her getting pregnant and trying to terminate the pregnancy collectively and together certainly taps into that. Uh, but there were some moments that like made me sort of wonder when it was kind of kind of like break th- break through this this sort of beautiful historic space that feels almost, I don't know, magical and liminal, but like, I, I, I don't quite know the full thought I'm going for, but I, I'm glad you brought up the interview with the director acknowledging s- some of the tension there. Well, I guess I have a question, Christine. I mean, do you think that the, you know, the real world via, you know, our historical understanding of that period, uh, not thrusting itself upon the world of the story detracts from our development and understanding of these characters? No, I don't. I don't think it detracts. Um, I think that, I think there's a lot of power in like imagining particular time periods uh, and portraying like everything from, yeah, like economically independent women to a queer love story situated in the 18th century. All of this stuff that it's, it's, yeah, it's like really powerful. I think that I might need, yeah, I, I don't have a full thought, but but it it is something that I, I I've have been sort of thinking about in the context of this movie and will add an ellipses uh, to be continued with my sort of thoughts as I as I process the movie. But all in all, like I, I it in the movie endows these characters with a lot of power that's uh, that is just evocative and moving and um, sheds light on stories that would have existed that don't, you know, get illuminated. Um, But again, I'm still processing. So I'll, I'll put a little ellipsis on that comment to be continued. I think you're bringing up some really interesting points for scene because for um, Skia Mama, this movie was sort of also talking about uh, like female erasure of art and there's this great scene um in the beginning where eventually you know Eloise finds out this happens pretty maybe like 30 minutes or so into the movie uh Eloise finds out that uh Marianne is there to paint her that there's been some ruse that her mother set up and so when she you know she asks to you know she then agrees to pose for it when she sees the painting she's like well that doesn't look like me and Marianne goes well there are rules to follow um these artistic rules how you pose you know how you know, kind of how you do all of this rules that are inherently patriarchal because this was a man's art world determining what does beauty look like, what should be put onto a canvas and hung on a gallery wall, whose art gets put on a gallery wall, and you have to follow these rules. And so I think schema sort of looking at, well, what happens if these rules that, you know, have been set up by others, what happens if there's this place where you know, these rules are being tested and pushed and what happens to, you know, these women who sort of, as I mentioned, there's, I don't think any men men on this island except for the ones on the boat who come in to drop Marianne off and then who eventually come to pick Marianne and uh, the finished portrait up. Uh, I agree with parts of that. I would give some pushback as far as the definition of of what that that implies in terms of um, uh, Eloise confronting uh, Marianne and went upon viewing the portrait as, as like when Marianne explains that there are, you know, these rules and these what are the words, traditions first and then uh, conventions and then rules like that specific order, you know, each escalating and like, you know, 
what could be, I guess, perceived as like, you know, a patriarchal um, kind of degree of like portraiture and what defines feminine beauty. But I think her, uh, Eloise's problem with it isn't so much that it, it abides by those rules as she's she's suddenly doubtful of Marianne as an artist because she is relying on on, on these conventions, but taking for granted conveying your subject, <clears throat> taking for granted breaking convention and breaking these structures in order to more thoroughly and explore a person and, and capture and uh, a conjure in painting, you know, and represent them, a person's inner self and personhood. And I think it's perhaps more that criticism because then the story leads into them kind of smashing those barriers between each other and uh, and and genuinely coming to know each other uh, in some really substantive and, and powerful ways that I want to speak about later. But but yeah, I found it to be more that. I mean, I, I don't think that the patriarchal undertones are not part of it, but I, I think it's more of her critiquing her as an artist because she's not willing to explore her subject beyond convention uh, and to find the truth of the subject. And I think that's a great point too, because over the course of the movie, her, I guess her portrait of, of Sophie is the closest to breaking outside of the sort of rules and strictures of conventional painting but her style mm -hmm. doesn't wholly trans she's not doing like modernist paintings <laughs> by the end of the movie but like but I think it what it does exam is like how her relationship with her subject that becomes the like super powerful uh br like breaking of convention which to me is like more moving than just watching a painter be like I'm going to like completely change my, my skill. It's like her recognition of the like communal consensual process of like creation uh, mm. that like is like breaking outside of the conventions of painter stands in room, stares at model, will render model exactly. It's like what's really uh, groundbreaking is their relationship more than it is her like complete, you know, change in, painterly style i guess to me at least how i yeah it. although i mean although we do have the titular painting that we're introduced to in the beginning which breaks from conventional portraiture okay. style of the year as well but you're right but you know that's in the you're right you're so right awesome. well and then i think another really beautiful moment and this is maybe my favorite scene in the movie uh we brought it up briefly but uh sophie is pregnant um and so she does she's 17 she does not want to have a child and so i think what's really there's this wonderful scene where you know, this is sort of like a subplot going throughout the movie. And so they go to um, this medicine woman who we sort of, you know, we meet earlier in the movie at this big bonfire scene we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and, and so we're shown this, you know, sort of late 18th century abortion procedure where um, she is terminating her pregnancy while there is a baby next to her. In our work, we talk about multiple truths existing at once. And so... Sam's going to kill me for saying that. Uh, but this is sort of a moment of like, there can be a love for life, but choices you make, you know, it's sort of like this great sort of, you know, dynamicness going on. Sophie tell, or um, Eloise tells Marianne that she has to look at the scene. This is part of a woman's experience. I forget exactly what she says. And then later that night, as they're sort of comforting Sophie, uh, Eloise has the idea to, for Marianne to draw sort of a recreation of it, something that would not be allowed to be put in a gallery, a drawing, a painting of an abortion scene. But this is something that happened to real people pretty much 
forever. <laughs> and so I think that was just a, a really sort of one of the many wonderful artistic scenes of these women recreating something that is, you know, a part of being for some women, you know, part of, you know, women's lives. I say this as a white man talking about a lesbian French romance drama, but this, for me, that was a really, I think, beautiful scene and this idea of, you know, what should be painted, how are things painted and also the power dynamics between, you know, Marianne and Eloise. It's not, I feel like this movie could have fell down so many rabbit holes or traps of like, I am the artist and you are my muse. You will be quiet. But like, it doesn't do any of that. It's kind of fucking against that. And uh, Eloise accuses Marianne of sort of like holding this sort of power over her as the observer, as the painter and selfishly kind of wanting these things from her. So this is just for my mind, just a few kind of you know, scenes that I think really spoke or resonated with me. Well, especially as eventually contrasted by uh, Eloise, while there's a portraiture happening, you know, while, while she's posing and being painted, um, she kind of points out to Marianne as, um, as Marianne, uh, Eloise asks Marianne while they're, they're in a session, like, you know, w- what is something that you would tell, um, you know, one of the people posing for you? And then Marianne lists these compliments that are, are pretty highly specific to Eloise, um, but then kind of like, almost like jokingly or diffusingly says at the end, that's what I tell them, you know, and illustrating that she, she has noticed all these, these specific things in observing her for this portraiture, even before they agreed to, to do the posing. Um, just noticing the nuances of how she folds her hands, how she, how she stands, how, um, how she carries her weight, all of this for portraiture. But then Eloise kind of reverses that and points out like, well, okay, come over to where I'm standing. What do you see? And basically is staring back at the easel, which is what she is seeing the whole time she's posing. And she says, well, I've noticed the way that you do this. And I've noticed the way that you do that. And so we've been watching each other. We've been, you know, observing the nuances of each other's individual personhood via our, you know, uh, our physical quirks and manifestations of that, uh, of our moods and of our emotions. And that has been this whole time a give and take that perhaps you're unaware of, which I, I found to be a really illuminating and interesting moment between subject and an artist or you know muse or it, it really it really becomes a very dynamic conversation within that one scene I love that moment yeah she's like well you look at me like what do you think I'm looking at? I'm looking right back at you and mm-hmm. it it also brings up the uh like how the story of Orpheus and Eurydice is brought up multiple times throughout the mm-hmm. uh throughout the movie and at one point you know, I I think Eloise raises the point, like, what if Eurydice asked Orpheus to turn around to look at her? So it's like endowing Eurydice with some agency and like what ultimately happens, you know, her disappearing, coming out of um, the land of the dead or whatever the story is. But um, yeah, it just, they're like wonderful little quiet moments where uh, it, it, turns on its head classic stories or dy- like like artist power dynamics and in really in really beautiful ways and this movie made me think a lot about uh the movie girl with the pearl earring like it came out about vermeer and like you know it was it was definitely a movie that was like oh what if this whole movie were just shot like a vermeer painting it was stu- it was like beautiful <laughs> to look at colin firth was a nice brooding vermeer it was like fine <laughs> uh but like it takes that it, it like takes that story of like, oh, painter, you know, like, like developing a relationship with subject and it like completely blows it apart. It's like, okay, you can have a movie that like is shot 
like a painting throughout, but also examine what exactly is happening when an artist like engages in the act of art and what exactly is the relationship between an artist and whatever the, whatever the subject is and how, like what agency does the subject have in how their story is being told or how their portrayal of their personhood is being told. And it just, it like, and I, and I, it reminded me another movie, a movie I love, um, uh, Phantom Thread, which I was going to ask, I was just about to ask. Yes. It reminds me of that too. Yeah. And I think it also in a lot of ways blows that movie apart in some intriguing Mm -hmm. ways as well. And so it just, yeah, it, it, Gave me a lot, a lot to think about, but especially about that, like artist subject relationship and questioning what roles each entity takes on in that process. Although, I mean, not to give away, like, but this was probably going to be a rant I had saved for toward the end of the episode because it's why I really appreciate it as a romance movie. Is that I, I mean, I really appreciate uh, the captivating metaphor that it presents for for falling in love in a way especially when viewed in that in that context of that conversation where, um, you know, it is, it is both people looking, it is both people seeing the other person. It is both people, you know, actually, you know, like as opposed to some other things we've talked about where like, you know, on the one hand, you know, rom- a, ro- a romantic movie could be considered like a quirky circumstantial scenario. It could be considered like a sprawling historic epic that brings uh, the whole world into it. Connor, like, as you said before, uh, with like a bunch of characters, uh, it could be a guy who turns into a demon when he gets aroused. But instead with this, it's, it's kind of just about, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's about it's like the quiet and slowly blooming discovery, acceptance and admiration of all that makes a person who they are um, noticing and like cataloging and memorizing and 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 understanding all of the, you know, the physical, the emotional, the the intellectual, the the mannerisms, like the the specificity of the wholeness of someone haunting you and bewitching you and enchanting you as a love that blooms in proportion to your discovery of their personhood. And I think this movie nails that in a way I haven't seen a movie do it before, perhaps because it does keep the world at bay and allows for that kind of narrative intimacy while approaching it from both sides of the artist and muse dynamic. That's an interesting phrase you bring up, Dave, like keeping the world at bay. And and I think it keeps the movie, I think I've made peace with the fact that it does kind of keep the world at bay and stays focused because it would, yeah, it would just be too much. And it really, it, you've articulated that beautifully, Dave. Yeah. It keeps it focused on, on the like optics and the reciprocity between two people that are in love and um, within the, through the lens of like artistic expression. And the world is not kept at bay for the entire runtime of their romance. Right. Which this is one of maybe my favorite quotes I've ever read when you know, looking at sort of different director interviews. You can only is, fall in love on an island for so long. <laughs> uh, also, like, this kind of, sorry, Connor, this also in the very beginning just reminded me of The Lighthouse a little bit. And I was like, oh, oh no, where is this going? I was totally getting Lighthouse vibes too. And I was like, this movie could go in so many different directions. I, I think I found our, our first double feature episode. Oh Why just spill your paint? <laughs> Such a great double. 
Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that was amazing. So Emily Vander Vanderwerf uh, Vox um, was you know, interviewing. I've read a little bit before. Uh, and so she said, so this is, you know, I love that you bring up keeping the world at bay. She asked, when you see the man sitting at the table late in the film after having spent so long with only women, it's such a shocking moment. And um, Skiama says, yeah, it's, it's the jump scare of patriarchy. Like they look like that. We forget how they look. Like I love that phrase, the jump scare of patriarchy. And it is sort of shocking to see this other figure just sitting at this table at the end, you know, when it's time for Marianne to go, the painting's done. Uh, we didn't mention this, but the countess, Eloise's mom had to go away somewhere for a while. And so that's why these, you know, Sophie, Eloise and Marianne were able to sort of, they had the whole house basically to themselves and so the whole world when the countess comes back the men come back on the boat it's just a great sort of jump scare quote unquote of the world coming in with sophie serving um this man breakfast um one one other moment i guess a series of moments i wanted to touch on before we wrapped up was uh christine you brought up the idea of music and there are really only three moments with music um featured heavily in this movie um and so that's you know, I love the use of sound and things and thinking about that. And this is such a brilliant use of how the absence of music can mean a lot because when music is brought in, then it becomes so important. Um, there's this great scene earlier on in the film when Marianne and Eloise are you know, starting to connect more. And so Marianne also plays the piano. And so she starts playing um, Summer from Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Um, it's like, da, 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 da. I, don't know. I can't don't remember exactly, but that's my impression of it. <laughs> um, and so Eloise is kind of blown away by this, even though Marianne's playing this on this out of tune piano. Um, she's not an expert piano player herself. Um, but Eloise says, oh, I've only known organ music and choruses and singing sort of like churchy songs. So to have something that is um, staccato and fast paced and full of emotion. Um, it's sort of really stunning to her. Then the second moment of music is at the titular fire when Eloise catches on, you know, her dress catches on fire at this sort of gathering of women, this revelry moment of this is where you meet the medicine woman who goes to talk to Sophie about, you know, how to receive this abortion, kind of the procedure for that. And then there's this great, Christine, maybe you'll be able to talk about the chanting a little more as more well-versed in musical chanting world. Um, but there's this great moment where the women just start singing. We've had silence for so long throughout this movie. And then these women coming together at this enormous bonfire just start singing the song. Um, the cool lead up is that there's this buzz hum and you're like, ooh, what's about to go down? Like <laughs> this could go like into like cool, like witch territory. And then it, I mean, it kind of, yeah, it, like they're all like buzzing and humming and then, it just erupts into uh, beautiful, like clapping and harmony, and like in a really wonderfully taught way. Yeah, it shifts from a minor key to a major at one point because it's that swell up at first, which just starts with the lower harmonies, and then everyone kind of joins in in dissonance until it reaches the one note. Uh, reminds me very much of like the "There Will Be Blood" score or like the like THX logo of just like, you know what I mean. Uh, but then it, it becomes this minor song as they're like clapping and going into parts. But then as like the upper third harmonies come in, it becomes a major key takeover and it changes tone altogether. And so, yeah, so initially like startling as far as like, where is this going? And then it just becomes this sort of like communal celebration as it shifts to the major key and they're all participating and it's really moving and really powerful. 
And each of the moments are so heightened because there's no other, there's no score in the, in the movie, um, which is such a wonderful choice uh, that really, yeah, dri- drives home. And I think it's uh, Vivaldi's uh, winter uh, movement. Oh, is it really? Which is a beautiful contrast to like the fire. Oh, I sorry, the one that we. Or no, yeah, the the choral song. I don't know what that was. It was awesome. I was gonna say it'd be crazy if that was a different season. That'd be interesting. But I mean, I don't think it was. I don't probably not. Fact check us. Wikipedia says summer. Vivaldi summer. So Wikipedia. Oh, for the for the song. For the piano, the piano. Oh, for the song. All right, then I then my. I was wrong. I was like, oh, it's this fire and ice contrast. But if it's summer, then it's a nice reinforcing of the heat uh, of the fire. Yeah. Which I think that idea ties nicely into the end of the movie, which is top five favorite movie endings for me, like final five minutes of any movie. So we talked a little bit about this, you know, the mythic qualities of this movie. And so I think that that chanting singing kind of brings it up. And then um, there's quite a few discussions about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, Orpheus, famous Greek poet, you know, this mythical character, singer, poet, person. Um, Eurydice gets bit by a snake, dies, taken to the underworld. Uh, Orpheus is so distraught that he goes to the underworld himself, asks Hades to release um, Orpheus, Hades does, or Eurydice. Hades says, sure, go ahead. But in the whole walk back up to the surface from the bottom of the underworld, he can't look at her once does the whole walk. And so the myth goes that right as they're reaching to the top, Orpheus turns around to get a look, sees her, basically her face as she gets dragged down back into the darkness of hell. Um, and this has been probably one of the most famous scenes in like kind of painting. Like so many people have done a rendition of it, whether painting or other various stories or adaptations. And so I think this is, I think a really wonderful moment of motif that's brought through. We see this sort of ghostly element um, of Eloise in this white dress, like Eurydice. So there's like kind of spooky ghosty elements throughout it that Marianne sort of sees these visions that then comes back at the end when um, there's this discussion about, I think Dave, you brought up, you know, did Eurydice call out to Orpheus to look at her because she didn't want to go or these various reasons. And so there's this really beautiful moment where Eloise is in her white riding dress at the top of the steps. Marianne is about to run out the door because she's just, you know, doesn't really want to lose her. Like, it's a very tense moment. And then the door just slams in darkness and Marianne presumably walks away, runs away. Then we fast forward to years later where Marianne is at a gallery. One of her paintings is up there. I believe there's a moment where she says uh, it's, she did not put her name on it because she wanted it to be hung in the gallery. And it's a painting of Orpheus turning back to look at Eurydice in this very, you know, this man comments that, oh, you don't really see it painted like that way. Um, which I think is interesting. And then she goes to this orchestral, you know, concert performance. And then they- Sorry, I have a quick question. Sure. Who painted the second portrait of Eloise? I was going to say, there's that too. Yeah, where um, as she's recounting this, uh, she's also saying, you know, what is it? This, the second time, or uh, the when I saw her for the first time again or something like that. And she sees a modern portrait of her, one that was done after the fact by, I'm not sure who, Christine. I don't know if it's mentioned. I um, okay. I thought that maybe Eloise did a self portrait. Is that not? No, I think it's just. Well, I don't think so um, necessarily. I mean, like, I I did why not do, pick why, up. On I that. I don't know. I just okay. I because okay because the page book was on page twenty eight. 
That, yeah. Which connects back to when uh, Marianne is painting the portrait, uh, or, oh no, when when they're in bed together and and she's like, give me a page number, and then Eloise is like, turn to page 28, and then she draws uh, like a self-portrait, like while the, yeah, while they're in bed. And I was like, how would the painter, if somebody else did that painting, how would the painter know to turn to page 28 unless she was intentionally bookmarking it to be like, if, if, uh, Eloise or if Marianne ever saw this again, she'd know that I know that she was looking at me or something. Or that I'm still thinking of her. Yeah. That's what I think yeah. it is. I think while posing, she intentionally had that book intentionally earmarked visibly page 28 as just sort of like a secret message through art to her after all these years. If, if, if it, with the assumption that hopefully she would see it. Okay, I didn't know. I was like, maybe, maybe Eloise became a really good painter herself <laughs> and did a self-portrait and then was in the big salon or what. I don't know. That's definitely wrong. <laughs> and in this portrait is a young child who is yeah, her so child with this, presumably that same Milanese nobleman who was, you know, maybe that she was supposed to marry through the movie. Um, so after seeing this portrait of Eloise, thanks for bringing that portrait up, guys. Um, we're then Marianne goes to this orchestra and then all the way across the concert hall, uh, she sees an older Eloise. And then they start playing Vival that Vivaldi song that Marianne played toward the very beginning of the movie. And then it's a slow zoom in on Eloise as we essentially, I kind of, I see it as, her revisiting the emotions of the movie we just watched of sort of reliving the power of art to relive experiences um to remember this moment maybe one she tried to forget later on tried to suppress maybe she's had certain feelings about marianne in this time as the years gone on and then there is yeah christine i never really thought about that bobbing there's a little bit as you were bringing up um, connecting to the beginning, I, I never thought of that. And so she just has this huge sort of goes through this like emotional roller coaster as she's watching this concert begin. And it goes on, I believe, for just over three minutes. Um, this one it was hold. almost it was almost becoming a pie eating moment. And I was like, no, no, this movie earned it. <laughs> I Christina's, can watch. Christina's, <laughs> she's referencing, uh, if you don't remember, listeners, uh, the Casey Affleck coming back to him um, with Aruna Mari, uh, a ghost story uh, where she eats pie for eight minutes in grief of losing Casey Affleck. I have a running mental list of indulgent long shots, and this is not on the list. But it was almost becoming that, but no, it was very beautiful and uh, like a moving living, breathing portrait of our, you know, or of our hero or whatever. But, um, yeah, it was, it was another 20 seconds and it, it might've made that list. <laughs> another great example of what I think is masterful editing. And it also does, I mean, especially because of the arrangement of those two scenes, the one we just discussed in this scene, it's, you know, it's perhaps like, you know, it's almost like, uh, Marianne seeing that portrait and thinking like, you know, like, uh, though she has this page bookmark, you know, obviously she's had a child, she's moved on with her life. How much am I really part of her memory or part of her life anymore? And then the second time she sees her, and the last time, as uh, she says, is when we get that Zoom, which obviously, you know, relays to us as the audience that, you know, she is still in moments where she is brought back to to that that period of her life where she was being painted and, and where she was with Marianne 
still deeply resonates with her in spite of who she has to purport herself to be and is is still powerful enough to move her to tears in a way that we it is allowed so much time on screen and and in a way that like I, I I really appreciate how long it is because almost like the it's like a three minute version of the boogie night scene with Mark Wahlberg where like we see her initially like you know it like recognize the song and then she begins to like kind of like quietly grieve. But then in the midst of that grief, we do see her kind of almost revel in it, like almost a, a rejoice of this, the, the poignancy after all these years of this memory still, um, which you wouldn't get if you didn't hold on it for so long because it allows her breathing room to go through those with a, 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 a convincing nuance and and performed expertly. So yeah, I think it's a phenomenal ending to a very, very good movie personally. Well, that was Portrait of a Lady on fire um i just oh, oh I go just ahead no go thing. ahead i was just I, gonna I just, say any final thoughts i looked up uh the song that the women are singing in the bonfire and the song was written just for the movie it's oh, in french nice. so i don't know i don't read french so i have no idea what it's about but um yeah it's a it's a uh, portrait of a lady on fire original the hot single off the new album <laughs> a portrait of a lady on fire uh, I did have one thought as concerns the titular line being in the movie, or like right at the beginning when she's, uh, you know, the, one of the students has, asking like, what's up with that painting? She's like, I don't want to talk about it. And then but the student asks like, well, wh- but what is it called? She just turns into it and just sort of with a sigh, it's like portrait of a lady on fire. And then it kind of like slightly zooms in on it. And then it cuts and says portrait of a lady on fire. Like, eh, it would have been nice to have it just cut to the title for me. But it also would have been a very like always sunny thing <laughs> in a sense. Then, hey, what is that painting? Da, 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 da. <laughs> so I don't know. Mixed bag maybe on that. But perhaps my only criticism. I really, I really, really was swept away by this movie. I found it very hypnotic, very immersive, especially in its use of color and light and sound design to make it like hypnotically immersive um, and such a tremendous like sense of space, especially in interior spaces and the creaking and so on. Um, it's it's lush and romantic rendering of its landscapes but not with a sort of like postcard sort of like cinematic element like it it allows that there's always something happening in those scenes there's always a figure we're always seeing something it's it's contributing to the narrative it's not just set dressing or a scenic set dressing and and like i said it was just a very uniquely intimate portrait of of romance that allowed for us to just stew in the 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 nuance and the milieu and like the actual emotional momentum of that love absent kind of like outside imposition and distraction. So I, I found it to be a really unique romance movie that uh, has turned my opinion on the genre. I'm finding more and more that when I uh, denounce a genre, I find examples that uh, that con- uh, contradict my feelings on it. And this is definitely one of those. So I was really glad to have seen it. I was also really glad it was included and our romance theme, we we decided on a romance theme uh, specifically in conjunction with uh, Connor's uh, getting married. Uh, but it also happened to coincide with Pride Month, so I'm glad that we had a film that was uh, uh, was a little less heteronormative than some of, some of our other picks, including my own. But um, but it was just a really yeah a movie that I think is going to stick with me for a long time, and one I can't wait to watch at night because I watched it at like two in the afternoon. And uh, found that like outside light was really distracting. So I, I really, I'm looking forward to watching it in a nice dark space with just me in the movie. Any other final thoughts? Well, I was, I, I was, uh, I thought the costume design was amazing <laughs> too. Shout out to the costume designer. I wanted to wear every single one of those. Even the green dress? <laughs> I would have worn that green dress, fine. <laughs> 
that lush satin or what I don't even know fabric, whatever it was. Taffeta? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it was it was stunning, but I, I I was curious. I'd love to know, Sam. Was there anything that you wished, or like, was there elements that you wished you had more of, or or? I, you know, I really appreciated hearing everything you all had to say. Um, weirdly, I don't think it changes my mind too much, but you know, it 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 is nice to hear people love and appreciate something so much. So I always enjoyed that. But I think that for me, it's less about what the movie did or didn't do and more like, I just don't think that it's one that I can sit through. Um, because my, I, I, we've seen this time and time again, I, I cannot handle the slow, slow burn. And, um, you know, whether that's a good thing, bad thing, who knows? But I just think it's probably just my preference. That's all. Yeah. And returning to Sam, what you were saying at the beginning about your your sort of like hesitance to to criticize the film too much because of, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's it's themes and it's um, it, it's non heterosexual relationship and in those dynamics. Yeah, I think it's perfectly fair to to dislike this movie for aesthetic reasons. I mean, this is a movie that in the wrong hands could be perceived by someone that's bad for a lot of stupid reasons. Like, ah, oh, they're rejecting the family unit. Look, this woman's getting an abortion and there's lesbians. Like Alex Jones would have a field day with this fucking thing. But, uh, but I respect and appreciate that, you know, your differences with the movie are aesthetic. And, you know, I think that's totally valid. Thanks, Dave. I agree. Totally valid as well. Well, that was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, thank you so much for this really wonderful discussion. Uh, sometimes I feel like movies I love are some of the hardest ones to bring to the podcast because there's just so much to talk about, uh, so many things that I want to talk about. And so would really love to hear those listening. Have you seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire? You can watch it on Hulu. I think it's now a Hulu movie in America, so I think it'll be on there forever. So very easy to watch. Uh, I do think nighttime, Dave, or dusk, maybe start at dusk as night moves in, mm. um, is the best time to watch this movie. So be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, all those places. Uh, and also shoot us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow all the other wonderful podcasts on the Movie John J-A-W-N podcast network. Uh, anything else? Other folks want to plug or discuss? Oh, I finished Mayor of Easttown. I don't think I talked about that. <laughs> really like the ending of Mayor of Easttown. That's one thing I wanted to bring up. Can we have a discussion, quick discussion in two minutes after this recording is over? Sure, no Christine. Spoilies. No spoilies. No, no spoilies. Uh, very good. I think all, I thought it, it all has to be, the conversation all has to be in the Delco accent. That's the rule. Oh, God. <laughs> we'll have to talk um, about whether or not we like this movie, dude. They had like a little 20 minute part at the end that was like just a little documentary about how they filmed it or, you know, just like kind of the filming of it. And so the link, the linguist was like, yeah, we really want to respect the local culture and get the accent right. And like, get out of here with respecting the local Delco culture. I could not handle those interviews that like, I don't know, those weird interviews with like Kate Winslet. And she was, you know what? I'll save you. I'll <laughs> if save you me. want to hear us talk about Mayor of Easttown. <laughs> shoot us an email or a message on you know any of our services and we'd be maybe we'll do a brief discussion on our next episode all right well with that um what's what's our thing we're saying these days have a good whatever have a good whatever <laughs>